All right, as you could uh, as you could see in the bulletin and as Ben reminded you this morning, we have a long text this morning. Um, <clears throat> we'll be in chapter 27, Acts chapter 27, all the way through uh, really about halfway through Acts chapter 28 into verse uh, 16 of Acts chapter 28. So I, I got to tell you this, uh, I, I probably tell you this so often that you kind of get numb to it. I know, I know how it is when, um, when you hear the same things over and over again, but I especially want you to have a copy of God's Word open in your lap this morning, whether you use the copy that's in, in the pew uh, in front of you, whether you have your own copy, whether you have an electronic copy, uh, whatever it is, I, I highly encourage you to have a copy in front of you this morning. The text that we go through won't be on the screen, so those of us who uh, tend to use that as a crutch, we're not going to have that crutch this morning. We are walking through so much of this text that uh, Ben didn't read it uh, this morning, and he thanks me for that with just the, the few hard names that, <laughs> that were in that brief section. <laughs> this uh, this whole section is really like a travelogue. It has the names of places and all these different uh, different things along the way. So it's kind of difficult to, to read publicly. Um, but that's not the reason that I'm not going to be reading it uh, as we go along. Really, it's just that it is such a long text that it would take uh, the majority of our preaching time to, <clears throat> to walk through that and to read uh, each verse of that. So, since we're not reading that, I'm assigning that as homework. You get to go home and you get to read every verse of that. Now, we're going to be walking through that, and I'll tell you the events that happen and hopefully explain those in such a way that it will bring clarity. But as I explain those things, uh, you might need to take some notes for clarification as you uh, go through. So uh, I, I trust that this is not going to be a wearisome journey, but even if it is a wearisome journey as we go through this uh, this morning, maybe it'll be just a small reminder about the, uh, <laughs> the harsh nature of the journey that we're studying uh, this morning. You all know how much, uh, how much I love to read. I, I tell you often about different books that I'm reading or different things that I'm reading, and, and I've told you about how Miranda is cleaning out my library and organizing the books and how she's always saying, well, can we get rid of this one? Can we? And I'm like, no, 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 we, <laughs> we can't get rid of, we can't get rid of those. But the fact is, is most of the books that are in my library, most of the books that I read are one-time reads. You read the book and you get benefit from it and, and you just read it one time and then it's, it just sits there and looks pretty on the, looks pretty on the bookshelf or takes up room on the bookshelf. Now some of those books are ones that I'll go back and I'll reference occasionally, you know, have, oh yeah, I remember I read that and I'll go back and, and look at that. A few of the books are worth reading again. There are some that, I think, and, and as we've gone through this exercise in my library at home, there's a whole stack of them now that I'm like, oh, I need to read that again. There are some that are worth reading again, but there are a precious few books that are worth reading over and over and over again. Of course, Scripture is one of those. I encourage us all the time to, you know, that's why we put out a, a prayer, I mean, a, a reading list on the bulletin is so that we can read through the Bible each year, hopefully. 
but not just the Bible. There are other books that are worth reading over and over and over again. One of those books that I hold dear, that I try to read through uh, at the beginning of every year, is a book called Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've met, most of us have heard of the book of Pilgrim's Progress. I've heard it said that Pilgrim's Progress is one of those books that everybody knows about, but few people read. Well, if you're one of those that have heard about it and haven't read it, I would encourage you, I would highly encourage you to read it. I can't tell you how many times I've read that book, and I can't tell you how that each time that I read it, it seems like I love that book more and more. I'll never forget the time, the first time that I chewed through that book. I'd had it on my shelf for a long time, and I thought, well, okay, people that I respect are talking about how good this book is, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to work my way through it. And, and when I said chew my way through it, yeah, the first time that you read it, you've really got to chew your way through it because it's written in 17th century English. <laughs> so you got to, you know, we're not familiar with the terms and all that, so you have to really work. You have to work your way through it. It's not an easy read. Well, before, you know, I, I had heard about it forever, and before I read it, I thought that I thought I knew what it was about. I thought that the book was about a pilgrim's journey to salvation. That's not it at all. Now, the first part of the book, he covers that in the first part of the book. It's the pilgrim's journey to the foot of the cross where he takes off his unbearable burden and he and he lays it at the foot of the cross. But really, that part is over with in just the first the first little bit of the book, the vast majority of the book is Christian, the pilgrim, Christian's journey from salvation to a place called the Celestial City, and we know what that is. It's his journey of life, his journey of life from the cross to heaven. In other words, we're traveling with him through his life as a Christian. And all along the way, you see all the successes, you see the failures, you see the victories, you see the defeats, you see the distractions, so many distractions along the way. And you see all the helps along the way, the people who would come along in the journey and help him. It's a story of all the things that believers go through on our way to heaven. The fact is, and the reason I love that, that book, that allegory, that story so much, the fact is, is each of us, all of us, are pilgrims on a journey. Now, if you're not saved this morning, then I pray that your journey is to get to the point where you lay your unbearable burden down at the foot of the cross. In other words, I pray that everything in life, including this step right now, is directing you to the point where you trust Jesus as Lord and Master and Savior. But if you are saved here this morning, we're on a journey. And your journey is shaping you and molding you. And all the things along the way are not accidents along the way. You're not just in a holding pattern until you get to heaven because everything God allows or places in your path is part of the journey that's shaping and molding you into the believer that God created you to be. I've shared this with you before, but one of my favorite verses is Philippians 1.6. 
it's one of my favorite verses because it's such an encouragement. It says, and I am sure of this, Paul is saying, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. That's a promise that if God has started a work of salvation in you, then He will, promises that He will bring it to fullness, completion. In other words, if you've started the journey, you're going to finish the journey. All the steps along the way. You know, as we've been working our way through the book of Acts, we started this journey with Paul way back in Acts chapter 8. Way back in Acts chapter 8, we, we saw before he was saved, when he was standing and holding the coats and giving his hearty approval to the execution of the believer named Stephen. And that was where Paul's journey that, that we see, that was where his journey started. And we've been walking with him all along the way, and that journey continues in our passage this morning. You know, it's been two long years in Paul's timeline. It's been two long years in jail and in prison since he received the promise from the Lord that he would go to Rome and that he would testify about Jesus in Rome just as he had testified in Jerusalem. It's been two long years. What a journey that's been for him. He's finally on his way to Rome. Finally, to the point where he's leaving Caesarea and he's going to see the fulfillment of a promise of Christ. He's starting a journey. And what a journey it was. What a journey it was. Anybody in here ever been on a cruise? Anybody? Bless your hearts. This was not a cruise. This was not a cruise. This wasn't even, you know, my daughter uh, just got deployed on her uh, on her battleship last week. This wasn't even that kind of a trip. This was a sea journey, a harrowing sea journey. They they started out on this this small just little junket that would would travel from port to port. They started out on that kind of boat and then transferred to a grain transport ship in a place called Myra. The problem was, the time that they took this journey, it was way, way too late in the season for them to take that kind of a journey. Verse 9 says that the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. When it says the fast was already over, that's referring specifically to the Day of Atonement. So we know that this journey was taking place somewhere around the September-October time frame, which was way too late in the season for them to embark in this kind of a journey. And, and any, I mean, none of us would know that kind of thing, but any kind of even moderately experienced sea seaman would understand that. Any kind of experienced crew would understand how treacherous it was to travel this late in the year. Paul understood it. It was just widely known. But verse 11 says that the centurion listened to the experienced seamen instead of Paul. The experienced seamen were saying, we need to take this journey anyway. Paul was saying, it's too treacherous, we ought to wait. But the centurion listened to the seamen 
instead of listening to Paul. And then verse 12 says even worse than that. They said, well, let's just bring up the crew and, and we'll have a vote. Well, it just goes to show you, there's a little life lesson right in the middle of this passage. It just goes to show you that just because the majority votes on something, the majority isn't always right, is it? The majority wasn't right in this case. Now, they were hoping... They were hoping to leave where they were and make it to a port, uh, a place called Phoenix. This place called Phoenix, it was on the island of Crete, and it was on a part of the island that was sheltered from the weather. So they were hoping they could make it to Phoenix. I guess they were. that's where we get our snowbirds that like to go to Phoenix in the wintertime. Maybe it was the same kind of attitude. They wanted to go to Phoenix and stay out of the storm uh, and winter there. Well, it doesn't, it didn't happen that way. It didn't happen that way. Verse 13 says that they were getting a very favorable wind. So as they were ready to leave the port and they had taken this vote and everybody decided on it, they had a little bit of a favorable wind. So they said, Hey, let's go. <laughs> that favorable wind didn't last long, did it? Didn't last long at all. Verse 14 says that they ran headlong. The ESV says they ran into a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster. Now, if any of you have a, a King James, an, an old King James translation, that they actually give it a name in that. It was called Eurachlodon. Eurachlodon, it's really, it wasn't really the name of the storm. It was just that the translators of the King James didn't translate the word hurricane directly. They just translated it as a name. That's what they were doing. They were headed headlong into a hurricane, even the winds, even though the winds seemed favorable at first, it was like the calm before the storm, and they headed directly into the teeth of a hurricane. If you've ever seen the movie Perfect Storm, it's about 20 years old now, but that's the picture that always comes into my mind when I read this, is that just awful kind of storm that they headed into. It had to be absolutely terrifying. Can you imagine? The crew... This experienced seafaring crew, this crew had to use every bit of navigational and every bit of nautical skill that they had to keep the ship from being ripped apart in this hurricane. And as you walk through the passage, you'll, uh, hopefully you don't get lost in all of the moving from this to this and, and under the lee of so and so. What it's saying is they were going from different parts of these different islands trying to trying to let the islands shelter them from the wind and shelter them from the storm. They were trying to direct themselves in such a way that the ship wouldn't be beaten to pieces. But that didn't work because they were trying to do this in the middle of this awful hurricane. So when that didn't work, they said, okay, let's let's do what what the ship's are supposed to do in a storm. Let's turn directly into the teeth of the storm and let's head straight into the wind. Well, that didn't work either. They weren't able to get the ship turned directly into the wind so that they could face perpendicular into the, into the waves that were crashing. So when that didn't work, they said, well, let's try the next thing. Let's turn it directly with the wind. Well, you know what happens then, right? Your little sailboat turns into a speedboat in a hurry. And they were getting, uh, the passage says they were getting carried along with the wind. And as they were getting carried along with the wind, you can imagine how they were riding these waves and how it was 
just beating on the ship, beating on the sides of the ship. It was so tumultuous that they even had to bring the lifeboat in. The the ships in those days would have a, a transport boat or a lifeboat that was tied to the side of, of the boat. Well, as they were going up and down and being beaten back and forth, that lifeboat was just beating on the side of the boat, plus it was filling up with water, so they had to bring the lifeboat into the boat. Not only that, these boats were made out of, of wood, planks of wood. So in order to shore up the boat so that it didn't just absolutely split apart, they had to cable the boat. In other words, they wrapped ropes around the thing, and they would have to tighten these ropes. This is all described in the passage. And they, they cinched up those securing ropes. Eventually, they had to get to the point the boat had taken on, on so much water and it was starting to sink so low into the water the ballast was too heavy, so they had to throw the cargo out of the boat to lift it up out of the water. They threw every bit of the cargo overboard. Even later on, it got to the point where they had to throw the wheat overboard. That was the last little bit of cargo that they held. And when it says later on that they threw the wheat out of the boat, sometimes we read that and we think, well, they were just throwing out their food. They were so desperate that they were throwing out their food. It was more than that. They were not just throwing out their food. This was a an agricultural transport ship. So that food, that grain, that wheat was money. It was cash. So picture it like they were throwing out buckets of gold, throwing out buckets of money just to save their lives. That's how desperate things got. Verse 20 says that things were looking hopeless. Can you imagine the hopelessness being in that kind of an environment where you're having to throw out everything? It's looking hopeless. But right there in the middle of that that terrible storm, right there in the middle of that hopelessness, Paul provided a ray of sunshine. Well, before he provided a ray of sunshine, this is one of the reasons I love Paul. Because, you know, he's sometimes he's got to get his digs in. Back in verse 21, see what he said? First thing he had to say was, you know, I told you so. I told you we shouldn't have done this. It's tempting to do that, isn't it? I love when I'm right. You get to say, uh-huh. should have listened to me. Brandon's back here saying amen. <laughs> but after he went through that little moment of saying, I told you so, then he, he, he told them that, that God had told him, God had appeared to him, God had given him direct revelation to tell him, to tell them that none of them were going to die. That'd be reassuring, wouldn't it? He told the whole crew that none of them were going to die. Hey, now, <laughs> he told them the ship's going to be lost. The ship's going to be lost, but nobody is going, not a hair of anybody's head is going to be harmed. As long as everybody sticks together, then nobody's going to die. Verse 24 says, God has granted you all those who sail with you. And I think it's, it's fascinating as you read through Scripture and as you see how communities and you see how 
areas and you see how people and you see how non-believers and you see how the crew on this ship are blessed just because they're in the presence of believers. It's amazing to me how when God places a believer in a workplace or how God, when He places a believer in a, in a school environment, in a harsh environment, when God places a believer in a, in a community, how it's as if His goodness radiates from that believer. The only reason that God preserved the lives of those people on that ship was because Paul was present with them. Because a believer was right in the middle of them. And that's something to remember. Matter of fact, you might even be tempted to put that on your resume sometime. If you hire me, you're going to have God's blessings attending. Well, maybe not. But it's an idea, right? Your company is going to be blessed because a believer is working there. Your school is going to be blessed because a believer is in attendance there. Your community is going to be blessed because believers are in the midst of it. Well, okay, well, let's continue on with the story. Then then some fellas, they, they partly listened to Paul, but they didn't really listen to Paul, and they decided we've got to escape this whole thing. And after they tried to escape and the centurion believed Paul, he said, no, nobody's going to escape. Matter of fact, he cut the rescue boat, cut the lifeboat away so that nobody could escape. But then after they were caught trying to escape, Paul told all 276 people on board that boat, he told them all to eat. Can you imagine? I've been seasick one time in my life, and I don't want to ever do it again. And when you're seasick, the last thing that you want to do is eat. So can you imagine these 276 people who were being storm-tossed, had been storm-tossed for 14 days? Paul tells them, y'all need to eat. 276 people got on board that ship, and 276 people were going to make it out alive. But they needed to eat. They needed to eat something. They needed physical sustenance to keep their strength up. Because God knew that they had a rough swim coming up. They had a difficult task ahead, so they had to be prepared for that. Verses 39 through the end of chapter 20, uh, through the end of chapter 27 there, they describe how the ship ran aground and when the ship ran aground and how it, it was pivoted in the storm and how it, it was just once it got, once it got grounded, how the waves just beat the thing basically into kindling. Just gradually and continually beat that ship absolutely to pieces. And as the ship was grounded and was being beaten to pieces, the soldiers on board said, okay, we got, we got to kill the prisoners because we don't want them to escape. How quickly they forgot what Paul had told them. But they said, we, we got to kill the prisoners. But the centurion, centurion Julius, he didn't forget. So he protected Paul in the midst of that. He kept the soldiers from killing him. And then, All of them had to jump into the rough, storm-tossed waters. What a choice, right? You're on a ship that's being beat to pieces, and you can either stay with the ship and be beat to pieces with it, or you can jump into the storm-tossed water and try to swim to shore. 
That was the choice that they were faced with. All 276 of them jumped in the water and started swimming for sure. They swam to the safety of a little inlet in an island called Malta. And they finally get there. All 276 of them get to this island paradise called Malta. Safe and sound, right? Safe and secure. All safe. We're off of the boat. (laughs) Not hardly. (laughs) Not hardly. When they get to the island of Malta, and by now we're into chapter 28. When they get to the island of Malta, the, the locals, the islanders there, they were very hospitable. And the first thing they did, they saw these guys had been through the storm and they were soaked and all that. So they built this huge fire for them to dry off and for them to warm themselves by. And then look what happened in verse 3 of chapter 28. I want to see the tops of everybody's heads. Look at your Bible and see what happened in verse 3 of chapter 28. You see that? You know you're having a bad day when you survive a shipwreck only to get bit by a snake. That's having a bad day. (laughs) Really, Lord? (laughs) You got me through the ship. 276 people made it to shore, and now I'm going to get bit by a snake. I, I believe that. Maybe Paul's prayer just isn't recorded there. But I believe that my first question would be, Lord, why are you having a snake hang off of my arm right now? Now, if that would have been me, aside from that prayer, I'd have been dead right there. Whether the snake was poisonous or not, I'd have been dead right there. Heart attack, gone. Period. But Paul, being Paul, how does it describe it? He took that snake and he shook it off in the fire. <laughs> he was a bold guy. Now, I love the crowd's reaction there on the island of Malta. When they saw that happen, you, you can just picture what their discussion is. Uh-huh. Karma got him. Yep. I knew he was, I knew he was a bad guy. That snake got him. He's, that dirtbag's gonna get what's coming to him. Oh, wait a minute. He didn't die? Well, if he didn't die, then that must mean he's a god. People are fickle, aren't they? I mean, one minute they were ready to accuse him of being a criminal in the dirt bag, and then the next minute they were saying, he's a god, let's worship him. Listen, don't get too hung up on the latest thing that people want to tear down or build up. Because the crowd's fickle especially in these days that we're in of 24-hour news media and social media and all of that kind of stuff. One minute, man, everybody will be for one thing, and then the next minute it's just like a, a wave, and they'll be completely against it. The crowd will turn in a hurry. Today's treasure will be tomorrow's trash. So don't get caught up in it. Don't get caught up in it. Well, when... When this happened to Paul, all of a sudden the crowd went from being skeptical of him to loving him. Especially when Paul continues on through the island and he, um, God used Paul to heal Publius. Publius was kind of the director of the island and God used Paul to heal Publius's father 
and a bunch of other people on the island. So Paul started doing stuff for him, and they really liked him. Our passage wraps up in verses 11 through 16 that Ben read earlier. 11 through 16 of chapter 28. And it wraps up with Paul and his dear friends Aristarchus and and Luke getting on board another ship. If I'd just been through a shipwreck, I don't know if I'd be ready to get on another one. But they got on board another ship, and finally... Finally, in those last few verses, finally they get to Rome. God had fulfilled His promise. All the things that happened along the way, God had made a promise, and God fulfilled His promise. Paul was finally in Rome, and when he finally got to Rome, he was surrounded by... He was still a prisoner, but when he got to Rome, he was surrounded by church family and by friends, and he was ready to do what God had called him to do. He was ready to testify about Jesus in the heart of the most powerful empire that the world had ever known. That's a journey, isn't it? What what a journey that was. You think about the journey that Paul had been on through his life. He, he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was, as a Jewish man, he was educated at the feet of Gamaliel, the most respected Jewish scholar of the day. He was so zealous in the Jewish faith that he was a persecutor of the church. And then the next step along the journey was when he was knocked off his animal and blinded on the road to Damascus. And Jesus saved him. He was a bold missionary. He was a church planner. He was a writer of Scripture. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He was sick. He was diseased. He was broken. He was rejected. He was revered. He was worshipped. He was loved. He was hated. He was miraculously freed from prison, and in other times he wasn't miraculously freed from prison. He was bound in chains in other prisons. He was shipwrecked. He was starved. He was snake bit. He was saved from Tarsus to Damascus to Antioch to Jerusalem to Rome. <laughs> I'm going to say it again. What a journey. What a journey that God took the Apostle Paul. You know, my journey and your journey are not nearly as dramatic as Paul's journey was. But you are on a journey. If you're not saved, like I said earlier, I pray that you're on a journey that will result in you laying your unbearable burden at the foot of the cross. But for those of us who are saved... Just like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, we're on a journey to the celestial city. We're on a journey to when we finally get to see Jesus face to face. Now, based on this passage, and I know, I know we've been going through this for a while, so you're going to fall out of your seat when I say this, but it's going to be quick. Based on this passage, I want to give you ten things. Hold on. Ten things that will help you along your journey. Back up in chapter... Well, the first thing that will help you along your journey is that you need to make a few really close friends along the way. You need to make a few really close friends along the way. 
Back up in chapter 27, verse 2, you can see that Paul was accompanied by a man named Aristarchus. But what you might not notice is back up in verse 1 of chapter 27 that the pronouns change from they to we. We've seen that a few times as we've gone through the book of Acts, and every time we've noted that when it moves from they to we, it means that Luke had come along. The writer of this letter has come along. So Paul is accompanied by Luke and Aristarchus. Here's the interesting thing. According to Roman law, the only way that somebody could accompany a prisoner is if they were their slave. So that means that Luke and Aristarchus, Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, a man from Thessalonica, that means that they had to willingly subject themselves. They had to willingly give up their own personal rights. They had to willingly even give up their belongings and their title to be alongside their friend Paul, to go with him down this hard journey and willingly submit themselves to become Paul's slave. That takes a dear friend, doesn't it? Let me ask you, do you have any friends who are willing to sacrifice like that for you? Well, if you don't, are you that kind of a friend to somebody else that's willing to sacrifice in that way for them? See, those kinds of friends... They're going to help you along your journey. Second, always speak the truth. Always speak the truth, whether it's popular or not. In verses 9 through 12 of chapter 27, Paul spoke the truth about the danger of moving ahead. His words weren't popular, were they? Matter of fact, the the boat bosses didn't like his words, and then he got voted down in a business meeting. They didn't like his words, but he spoke the truth anyway. Knowing what he was going to say was was unpopular, it would have been very easy for Paul just to sit back and keep his mouth shut. But he didn't. He spoke the truth. Along your journey, speak the truth, even if it's unpopular. Third, travel light. Travel light. Verses 18 through 19, and then in verse 38, and then in verse 41 of chapter 27, it tells over and over again how they had to keep continually throwing stuff overboard. When things got rough on the sea, it brought all kinds of clarity as to what was really important, didn't it? And as things got rough, they began to lighten their load with the things that weren't really as important as they thought they were. Listen, we live in a world that is constantly bombarding us with messages saying that we need to accumulate more and more and more and more. We need to get more and more and more stuff. And they're not just telling us that, we're listening. If you don't believe that we're listening, then look around and see how many storage buildings there are in our community. The reason there are that many storage buildings is because we keep getting more and more stuff until we have no more room to keep our stuff, and then we got to get rooms to put our stuff that we didn't have room for in. Try saying that again. We have to have more places to put the stuff that we don't have room for. 
Now there's a, there's a lady on, I think she's on YouTube or whatever, uh, Netflix or whatever, Marie Kondo. Anybody ever heard of Marie Kondo? She's goofy as she can be, but she's got this one part right. Most of us can really afford to declutter our lives a little bit. Think about it like this. Travel light because the more stuff you accumulate is the more stuff that you're going to have to throw overboard when the storm comes. Travel light. Fourth, hear and boldly proclaim God's Word. In verses 21 through 24 of chapter 27, Paul received a direct revelation from God. And sometimes we think, well, boy, it would be nice if I you know, saw God in a dream or had a direct revelation from God. I want you to look down in your lap right now, those of you who did what I said to do. Look down in your lap right now, and what you have sitting in your lap right now is 66 books of direct revelation from God. You have the direct revelation from God in your possession. Read it. Learn it. Know it. Cherish it. Listen to it being taught. But when you do all that, don't just be like a sponge and keep it all to yourself. This isn't some sort of an academic exercise. No, take what God's told you in His Word and proclaim it to others. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your co-workers, tell your neighbors what God's Word says. If you want help along the journey of your life, listen to and then proclaim God's Word. Fifth, don't neglect your physical needs. In verses 33 and 34, chapter 27 Paul told his crew, after 14 days of not eating, he said, you guys need to eat. Listen, we can't get so over-spiritualized that we forget that we are physical creatures. We are, uh, some theologian has described it, that we are embodied souls. There's a physical component to your spiritual journey. You're not going to make it if you don't take care of yourself. So eat well. Some of us need to eat a little less well, rest well, work and exercise well. If you mess with any of those, that can quickly bypass your journey into detours of depression and weakness and weariness and even sickness. Taking care of, taking care of yourself on your journey is a spiritual issue. Sixth. Publicly give thanks in the middle of the storm. In verse 35, and that's a good one to highlight right in the middle of this. In verse 35, right in the middle of this life-threatening storm, Paul, I don't know if he stood up, he probably wasn't able to stand up, but before he breaks bread, he publicly gives thanks to God. Right in the middle of the storm. Can you imagine what that unbelieving crew was thinking? You know, these were, these were pagan people. They were probably thinking, wait a minute, don't be thanking your God. Be begging Him to get us out of this. Give Him, give Him offerings. Give Him sacrifices. Make commitments. Make those foxhole commitments. God, if you get us out of this, then we will. But Paul didn't do that, did he? He gave thanks in the middle of it. See, we, we need to understand what Paul did. We need to understand that we serve a God who is master of the storm. 
Our God is the master of all the storms in our lives. He's promised that He's actively working all things together for our good and for His glory, even the storms that we're in. Am I saying we have to thank Him for the storms? No. I'm saying we have to thank Him in the middle of it. Thank Him in the middle of it. Now, yeah, do we ask Him to take it away? You bet. But even as we ask the Lord to take away the storms of sickness or family problems, or whatever the storm is, even as we ask God to take those away, we thank Him in the middle of it for what He's doing, how He's shaping and molding us on that journey. And we ought to do it publicly. That will help you on your journey. Seventh, be refreshed by your church family every opportunity you get. At the very beginning, it's just like brackets on this passage. At the very beginning in verse 3 of chapter 27, and then in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 28, we see Paul surrounded by church family. That's not an accident. If you think that you can make the journey of life, if you think that you can make your journey as a believer without being part, an intimate part of the fellowship of a specific body of believers, I feel sorry for you. I feel sorry for you because life is going to be tougher on you than it has to be. God's given us each other. Amen? See, you can't just dabble on the outskirts of church family. If you if you dabble on the outskirts of church family when your seas are smooth, <laughs> and you expect the church to come along and, and fix things when the storm hits... It's not going to happen because you haven't built those relationships along the way. We gather together in this place and we gather together in homes and we do that at every opportunity so that we can be well equipped when the storm hits. The time to fix our boats is before the storm hits, not when we're in the middle of it. Gathering with your family here in the big group, gathering with your family here in small groups, gathering uh, with your family one-on-one, your church family one-on-one outside of the walls of the church, gathering in small groups outside of the walls of the church, all of those things will help you along your journey. Eighth, watch out for snakes. can't tell I hate snakes. I still, it still blows my mind that after Paul surviving the shipwreck, that the next scene that you see him in is with a snake hanging off his hand. That just blows my mind. Well, there's a life lesson there, isn't there? Things will jump out and bite you if you let your guard down. Just because you made it through the storm doesn't mean that there's not a snake hiding out there somewhere. You remember Elijah? You remember Elijah? He was up on Mount Carmel and he had 450 prophets of Baal, enemies who were coming against him, and it was Elijah. And he stood firm and God showed himself in a mighty way. What a victory for Elijah. And then the very next scene, (laughs) the snake bite of Jezebel's threat drove him into a cave of hiding and depression. 
You need to be on guard. Just as we're on guard against the storms of life, you need to be on guard against the little snake bites of life. Be aware. Be vigilant. And if a snake bites you along the way, you know what you need to do? Shake it off in the fire and keep going. Ninth, every step along your journey, look for opportunities to show kindness and do good works. Listen, the the greatest social ministry that our church can do is to do what Scripture says. And that's love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength and love our neighbor as ourselves. You know, you can't do one without the other. We can't get so wrapped up in our theology that we forget to love our neighbor. Jesus loves people, so if we bear His name as Christians, we bear His name. And if we bear His name, then we ought to love people too. James chapter 2, verse 26 says this, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Paul did good works. He helped his neighbors. He healed the folks. He did those things. We ought to do the same. Finally, if you want to help make, if you want help to make it through your journey as a believer, then you need to recognize God every step along the way. Chapter 28, verse 15 says that Paul thanked God and took courage. He thanked God and took courage. Earlier, when Paul prayed on the ship, prayed over the food, his thanksgiving was was public right there in the middle of the storm. But once the storm was over and once it was calm, this time it's personal. This time it's personal. First time it was witness. This time it's worship. You think about how far God has brought you along your journey. You might be in the middle of a storm right now. I don't know. You might need to lighten your load. You might need to throw some stuff overboard. You might need to claim God's promises. You might need to take care of your physical needs. I don't know. I don't know where you are along your journey, but I can tell you this. Wherever you are along your journey, your church family will help you through. Amen? Your church family will help you through the storm, but you have to let us. We'll help you through the storm, and we'll help you watch out for the snakes when your storm passes. Like I said, I don't know where you are in your journey, but I do know this. If you're a believer here this morning, you're not on your journey alone. You have a church family. But more than having a church family, you have the Spirit of God living in you. You have the Spirit of God living in you, and you have the Son of God walking with you, interceding for you right now. He's praying you through your storm right now. Not only that, you have a Father in heaven who has promised you that He is actively working all things, including your storm, together for good. Even your storms... And even your snakes. His promise of Philippians 1.6 that we started with, that promise stands true. I am sure of this. I am convinced of this. I believe this. That He who has started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
you're not a believer here this morning, don't you want that kind of promise? Don't you want that kind of help? See, the reality is the storms happen to everybody, don't they? Whether you're a believer or whether you're not a believer, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. So no matter who you are this morning, you're going to go through storms. Don't you wish you had a promise like that? Don't you wish that you had help like this? See, apart from Christ, you don't have any way to navigate those storms. Apart from Christ, you don't have any way to deal with those snake bites. But you can have that today. All you have to do is trust Him. The Bible says that all you have to do is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Trust Him. To use the picture from Pilgrim's Progress, take that unbearable burden, lay it down at the foot of the cross, and trust Him. Start your journey with Him today.